to Trennis Magnus, Donkey Punches Reality, presented by Two yes. True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I wanted to do for this, what is likely to be the last episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality for the calendar year of 2019, what I wanted to do for this episode is basically go out on a high note and talk a little bit of Star Wars, but specifically from the standpoint of what is Star Wars? What is it What is it about Star Wars that I love? What is it that I have connected to with it over the years? And just kind of hash through all of that. Now, a lot of you, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but a lot of you, you, you you've probably heard the drill already. You know, there's really not a whole lot left for me to say about, for example, the original trilogy. Be, uh, there's really not a whole lot for me to say on that that millions and millions and millions of other people haven't already said better. But I nevertheless, I did think that this, that I did have an opportunity here to explain, not so much justify, but I guess kind of rationalize my fandom. What is it about Star Wars that's captivated my imagination so much over the years? And I thought, you know what, for something like this, I think it would actually be a really good idea if I have some kind of a guest on the program, someone who whose love of Star Wars I think probably eclipses even mine. And so it is with great pleasure that I welcome back to the show the official surfboard consultant of the program, Mr. Scott Rifen. Welcome back, sir. How are you? I'm marvelous, and I'm even better since you introduced the program that way, only because this morning I told Jeff I'm going to be on with Trennis Magnus today, and he said, are you going to be on with Trennis Magnus Punch's Reality or Donkey Punch's Reality? And I said, I'm hoping for Donkey Punch. And here we are. <laughs> well, every time I've ever had you on the show, I think I've forgotten to use that. <laughs> so th I think this could be the first time so uh, that I that I finally remembered. So anyway, I'm yeah, it's, and I'm happy to have you. You know, uh, one of the things that you and I have kind of touched on this uh, a few times, I think even off mic, but a few times that among your friends, definitely on Facebook and whatnot, but even in, you know, but, but even IRL, you have these friends that you kind of develop a bit of a reputation with, like you're the political guy in the room, or you're you're the Star Trek guy in the room, or you're yeah. the one in the room that, that watches all the cop shows. You know, you, you get these reputations with people. And they they sort of come to you and they say, so what do you think about X, Y, or Z? Just whatever uh -huh. your your fixation is. And so I I would imagine, and I'm kind of teeing, teeing this up for you a little bit, I would imagine that a lot of people, especially over the last 20 years, they've probably come up to you and they've asked some kind of variation on, so what do you think about Star Wars, the thing that's happening right now? Mm -hmm. So is that how often has that happened to you? all the time and you know when you when you're in the media it's even more interesting as i am because you get to know reporters and that kind of thing so when they're gonna somebody's gonna do a newspaper article or a magazine article and they're in town they go oh i'm gonna do an article on the star wars thing well let me go get that star wars guy and uh so you know i've got i've got lots and lots of newspaper clippings of myself uh photographed in front of my collection and uh misquoted terribly and all that other good stuff um, I've had a number of photographers in my little home office here taking different pictures over the years just because when there's some Star Wars thing coming up uh, they just know oh well we better get a hold of him 
he's that Star Wars guy. And it's and you and it's kind of known among your peers that you are sort of the content generator when it, you know they're never going to have an empty column if they talk to you, right? Yeah, no, they're going <laughs> to. No, they're going to. They're going to have. That's probably. They're probably less likely to do it because they're they. I don't want to have to cut all that stuff out. But we we in the media are fundamentally lazy. I'll admit that. Yes. Um, I would even but, agree with that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So they generally, they don't want to go to somebody and go, well, he's going to have a whole lot to say. I don't want to have to edit this down. Just, can you give me three words? Okay, good. I'm looking to fill two inches here. Okay, got, got it. Done. Uh, so, yeah, th- that may actually make them less likely to come after me. No. <laughs> well, and the thing about it is um, Star Wars at this point, it's not like I'm the first one to observe this, but I just kind of want to reiterate it here. It is at this point a multi-generational affair. It would be safe to say, I think, that not even just different generations, even different age brackets within certain generations, they have a, a particular expression of Star Wars that is more Star Wars to them mm-hmm. than anything else. And, you know, the thing is, there was a podcast going on the TTF network for quite a while, as, as I recall. It was called... Um, growing up star wars now (laughs) i don't want to criticize anybody and i don't want to nitpick or anything like that but Uh i tend to think you know you and given that you and i technically are two different generations here and there goes my phone given Uh that you and i uh technically are two different generations from one another you're not that much older than me but you know Mm. that tiny little bit it does make a difference in this case you guys <laughs> well, hey, I mean, I'm pushing 40, okay? I can't throw stones at anybody, but uh, um, no, no, you, you guys... don't understand, Trent. I just yesterday told my wife I'm starting to assemble a list of celebrities I've outlived. Oh Lord, that's, yeah. that's how that's where it's gotten to with me at this point. <laughs> so yeah. you can push 40. Now I'm pushing 50. And I'm listening to an audiobook yesterday, and they're talking about uh, Marty Feldman. Oh, Marty Feldman, and terrible thing. He had a heart attack in a hotel in Mexico. They couldn't get to him in time. He died. He was only 48. Now at 48? Marty Feldman? And then Graham Chapman. Graham Chapman died. Shame of it all. He was only 48. And I went, what? <laughs> so I immediately went home and told my wife, I'm starting a list now of celebrities I've outlived. And I'm going to update this list every single day. <laughs> Well, um, either way, the uh, the thing is, you know, I don't want, like I say, I don't want to nitpick, or, or God knows, I don't want to criticize anybody, but I don't think that your generation grew up Star Wars. I just, I, I don't. You guys lived it in a way that I think was realer than probably anyone else. I grew up Star Wars. I mean, when I, you guys, you saw the movies as they were coming out, and... You know, the closest I can say that I came to seeing any of the original trilogy first run, uh, the only one I would have had an opportunity, really, uh, to see is Return of the Jedi. The night that we were going to see it, I forget what the specifics were, but I ended up staying home with my mom. This is uh, 1983, Odessa, Texas. And then out of nowhere fucking tornado comes to town and just roars up Andrew's highway. Meanwhile, my dad and both of my brothers are at the movie theater watching Return of the Jedi, completely oblivious to their peril, right? That's wow. my, that, that is the closest I, I came to seeing any of the movies. 
but your generation, I've, I've heard people, you know, these uh, Gen Xers say that they've got an emotional connection to Star Wars that is, un, let's just say it, unrivaled. Where are you on that? Like, is that is um, that an attitude that you have, or I I don't want to I don't look down on other people for having been born at the wrong time, um, but there there's I think the perspective is unique because it, it's kind of like being a European before Columbus and having been around when that journey took place and then being around after that journey and seeing the kids come up after that journey and you go, yeah, the, the, we used to not have this whole world over here. There there were two separate and distinct worlds. You know, the, the other thing I would compare it to, uh, and I can't yet with you, but I hope one day I can, is parenthood. Where there is literally the world before you became a parent, and then there's the day you became a parent, and there's nothing that I've ever been able to say that can convey the complete difference in the way you see the world, the way you view the world, the way you interact with the world, and how it has changed over the space of that really one day, whether it's the day that you're not a parent versus the day that you become a parent, or the day that you are there is no star Wars. And then all of a sudden there is star Wars. Um, so we're kind of the generation that knew the world before star Wars. And yes. then we're the ones that got hit. We're the ones that got smacked in the head with it. And so I think we, I, I wouldn't say we have a better perspective, but I think we have a different perspective because of that. Well, for me, the, just to kind of tell you where I was coming from the trilogy was that was just it, it was part of the background the way mm -hmm. i try to de yeah. describe it to people is this is going to sound maybe mean or dismissive and i don't intend that but it's it's part of the white noise star mm -hmm. wars was this thing that existed alongside thundercats gi joe transformers <laughs> all of these pillars of my childhood mm -hmm. um and so for me for a long time there wasn't anything really all that special about uh, about Star Wars because I was really more of a comic book guy even when I was a kid I liked I liked Superman I mean without question mm -hmm. that is the primary mythological construct of my childhood there's just no doubt about that and I liked Star Wars I mean I probably wouldn't change the channel if it if it came on TV but at the same time I didn't have the trilogy on cassette tape in my house when I was growing up I mean we had Empire but that was mm -hmm. it, you know, and really the turning point for me, it, you know, you talk about, you know, the day that you became a parent. Well, I remember the day that Star Wars stopped becoming something or rather it stopped being something that I had kind of a passive interest in mm -hmm. and something that was a lot more active. It was actually uh, May the 19th, 1999. And nice. we a big gang of my friends <clears throat> We actually skipped school uh, my senior year so that we could see episode see one. Episode one. Wow. Yeah. And we saw it twice in one day. And it, I, I hate to say it like this because it's, again, it, it may sound mean or bad or, or, or something. I don't know. But I didn't really get Star Wars before then. Again, I liked it. I loved Yoda. I loved Vader. I loved all that stuff. But this wasn't something that I had any special emotional investment in until episode one. And then you can see 
how things start and you know how they end up. So it's like, how the hell did we get there? And so the exploration of that question really did a lot to ignite my passion and enthusiasm for Star Wars. And I, since this is supposed to be kind of a shiny, happy, up with people type of mm. uh, celebration of Star Wars, one of the one of the things, oddly enough, that Phantom Menace gave me was an appreciation specifically for the original trilogy, John Williams scores. I, I, it's something I'd always been aware of, but again, just didn't really care all that much about. But listening to those original scores after having watched The Phantom Menace, and it's like now I can actually comfortably identify as a Star Wars fan. Going back to the original trilogy and listening to all those different themes and imagination and ideas, that was a big game changer. Now, was the Williams music, was that something that, you, that you've that you ever really been all that invested in or, or, or what? Because I get the idea that different fans have a different relationship with that music. It's more intense for some than others. So I yeah. just kind of wanted to figure out where you're coming from with that. Oh, I have. I mean, I'll go ahead and tell you, my intense loves were the action figures, the comic books, you know, any storytelling device. And to me, uh, one of the storytelling mechanisms was uh, the John Williams soundtrack. Uh, I remember, <laughs> this is terrible. I remember being six years old and going into Sears and my brother picks up the Star Wars soundtrack album. And I'm thinking, wow, my brother's buying me the Star Wars soundtrack. That was a two record set. It's expensive. Yeah. And I said, are you buying that for me? And he said, no, I'm getting it for me. And I looked down and I said, but you don't care about Star Wars. He goes, but I really want this. I said, but, but you don't care about Star Wars. And I remember having, you know, six years old, I had a little meltdown in Sears because my brother was buying this thing that I knew he wasn't buying for any other reason than he could rub it in my face that he had it. And I didn't. And at six, I had no way of putting together the money for it. So, um, and, and of course what did happen is about two years later, he comes to my room and says, Hey, do you want this? Cause I don't really listen to it. And I got the record, but, uh, that was Happiest always day of your life. Huh? <laughs> it was, it was a happy day, but it you know, it was one of those things I never could understand why he did that other than that's kind of, I guess what brothers do sometimes he had no real interest in star Wars. Now he introduced me to star Wars. Now he actually was the first one to say, Hey, uh, this is a thing that's coming. You need to pay attention to this. He brought home uh, scholastic you know, Scholastic Publishing. Yeah. They used to have a thing called Read Magazine, Scholastic Read. And it was a two-color little fold-over magazine that they would distribute to kids at school, and they would have some relevant articles to topical issues in in, uh, elementary, middle school, whatever, and discuss them and that kind of thing. And he came home with his copy of Read Magazine, and he said, you got to take a look at this. This is Star Wars. It's coming out this summer. It's going to be the biggest thing ever. And really, okay, well, let me take a look at it. And so they have this, uh, again, it's a two-color magazine, so they have a few photos from the magazine, but they're in horrible, horrible. You, you really can't read them. Or you, can't, you can't tell what they really are. So there's a shot of a TIE fighter chasing an X-Wing fighter in space, but the X-Wing fighter, again, printed in two colors, looks like a guy in a spacesuit. Oh, so wow. I think, because the X-Wing's kind of at an angle, so I think the, the 
two S foils at the bottom are his legs and the two S foils at the top are his arms. And I said, that must be Luke Skywalker walking in the sky. Oh, that's Took that that's name a bit literally, tough. didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's about Luke Skywalker and there's a guy who appears to be walking in the sky. That must be him. And, uh, so I started really, okay. Keeping an eye out for this thing. Um, and then we went on summer vacation and this is, it's funny because I get, I get real anal about the facts on these things. Um, and I knew for a long time that I had seen star Wars opening weekend, but I also knew I did not see it on May 25th. You know, when, when did I first see star Wars? Cause I, I when, when we had that kind of rebirth in the early nineties, everybody was, you know, I saw star Wars on opening weekend, May 25th. And it kind of became Woodstock for a while there. I remember that. Yeah. I remember yeah. that. And everybody, oh, I saw Star Wars May 25th when it opened up. And it was just like, there's it, it. I don't think I saw it on May 25th, but I know I saw it the first weekend it was in town. Right. And then I started doing the math. And, I'm, and what I'm about to tell you happened when we were on summer vacation. And we always went on summer vacation in July. Right. And it, it happened before I saw Star Wars. So it had to have been sometime in July or even later before I saw it because... It, the time frame doesn't make sense, but how was that opening weekend? So I actually went down to the library and started pulling up the old newspapers from 1977. Right. Starting in May, and there's no Star Wars in our theater. There's no Star Wars. If they get to June, and about mid-June, they start going, oh, Star Wars is coming. And that's it. I mean, literally would be, they. Because you may, I don't know if you remember this or not, they used to take out all kinds of ads in the paper for movies. Mm-hmm. And it was glorious during the, the, the summer release time period. Eventually it, it came to where, you know, you got two ad, two pages of ads of movies mm-hmm. in the, in the paper and you would, you know, you cut them all out and hang them on your wall. Cause they were practically the one sheets in yeah. black and white. And, uh, so anyway, I go through all the papers and I find that star Wars didn't come to Brunswick until July 29th. And that fits perfectly into my memory hole. So now I figured that's, you know, and what it is obviously is it did this slow rollout to the rest of the country. And we only had a few, at the time, maybe six screens in town period. And we just added three of them. Um, and so, or maybe seven screens, we just added three of them. So, you know, we just didn't, we didn't have the movie. It didn't come. Uh, but it finally came July 29th. We went on vacation, summer vacation before it came to town. And uh, we stopped for gas at a little convenience store. And part of our ritual, at least part of my ritual on these vacations, was anytime we'd stop at a convenience store, I would go in and grab the spinner rack and look at the magazines. You know, every every convenience store back then had a spinner rack. Oh, yeah, I remember. And uh, so I went in there, checked the spinner rack, nothing. And my brother says, hey, here's that movie. Remember that movie we talked about? One with Luke Skywalker in it. Here it is. And it was this Warren magazine. You know the publisher Warren, famous monsters and all that. Yeah. And, and it was a famous, yeah. yeah. It was a famous monsters <clears throat> special that was Star Wars. It was all Star Wars, 100% Star Wars. So I ran to mom. Mom, please get me this magazine. This is Star Wars. This is that thing we've been talking about all summer. It's the greatest thing ever. And uh, she ponied up the dough and got me that magazine. And I just, I just, I spent the rest of the trip just tearing into that thing. Mm-hmm. And then it was shortly after we got back that I still, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't go anywhere without that magazine. 
And uh, shortly after we got back, then it, it's when it showed up at the theater, obviously, July 29th. And so that's when I went to see it. Um, but you want to talk about just world changed. And uh, the worst part was my mom is not somebody who's ever late to anything. She will actually die a few years early so she can be on time for her funeral. She's just <laughs> like, and uh, so we get there to the theater like 30 minutes before the next show. Yeah, and back then these movie theaters it, they had just converted the big one screen into a two screen and you didn't have doors on the theaters you had these little kind of L shaped walls so you walked around the thing to get into the theater Right. so when you sat outside the theater door you could hear the movie blaring at you oh yeah and so I'm out here and you want to talk about that John Williams music Oh, I'm wow. getting so amped up because I'm outside Star Wars for the first time. And I've been told this is going to be it. And this music is just pounding at me. And I'm hearing the explosions and I'm hearing the emotions. And uh, and I'm, Mom, can we go in? No, we didn't pay to see that show. Hmm. We paid to see the next show and that's when we'll go in. Uh, Mom, so this is like torturous because that? that's yeah. like the Death Star trench battle that you're hearing, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Oh, and then, geez. of course, you know, yeah. Then, of course, there's the, the throne room and there's no dialogue during the throne room sequence. So my mom goes, OK, well, they're running the credits. You can go in and go in. So the last the first thing I see of Star Wars is the gang standing there, and the medals around the necks and everybody's cheering and they iris down into the credits. Mm. And the music is just amazing. The music is stunning. You know what? That's probably not a bad introduction to Star Wars either, all things no. considered. You know? No, really, no. Golly. No. Well, hey, um, when they did the the big 1997 special edition re-release, um, mm -hmm. uh, obviously I was in high school, and mm -hmm. the there were a fair number of people who, I mean, again, you, you get to a level with these things where it's sort of like cultural osmosis. Mm-hmm. People haven't necessarily seen these movies, but they still know them, you know, and I'm guessing Endgame is going to be if it's not already there, it's going to be there pretty, hmm. pretty soon. Infinity War arguably is already there. But um, there was one there was one uh, guy in my history class who was or sorry, I, I guess. No, it's sophomore year. So I guess it's world geography. Well, fuck it. Whatever. Anyway. So <laughs> that and um, but he would. Tell anyone who'd listen, he's like, yeah, I've never seen uh, these movies before. I don't really know a whole lot about them. He was an immigrant, right? Oh. And uh, he's from the uh, Middle East. And so um, Star Wars is just not on his radar. And so he he and his family, they probably moved here when he was like six or seven. And so he just, again, it's cultural osmosis. He can absorb it. He knows He knows the importance of Star Wars, but he doesn't really know Star Wars. And so he's like, well, this is a good opportunity. Sure. So he's also kind of a lazy pot smoking narrative well. And <laughs> so, you know, getting anywhere on time is it's all historically, it's always been a challenge, especially to get him there on time sober. Okay. It was a problem back then as well. And so um, so he kind of knew his own limitations a little bit. And so he thought, OK, I need a dividend. He showed up early uh, for for his uh, showing of Star Wars and he went into the theater early Basically, for the sh for the showing he hadn't bought a ticket for, it's the throne throne room uh, sequence. 
And, uh, you know, you've got Luke, Han, and Chewie. They're all, uh, you know, on this big kind of military parade, and they get their medals. And he's saying, okay, all right, that, that that's a pretty good way to end probably any movie, you know? So I bet I bet the rest of the movie's going to be, I, I bet it's going to be totally awesome. I'm getting kind of sleepy. Oh, no. Falls off right there. No. Sleeps through his entire showing, wakes up in the throne room scene. Uh. And... And he's kind of mad at this point. And I, but anyway, that's, but you know, you, you were talking about this kind of slow rollout. Now you probably remember this better than I would, but my understanding is that the idea that we have these days of a wide release wasn't really done before say empire. And so really before that movies would just kind of, if they were big, they would do a slow sort of buildup. If they weren't big, if they weren't expected to be like blockbuster type success, like Jaws or something like that, they would, it's almost like a rock band going on tour. It would just tour the country mm -hmm. and they would be like, we'll say, I don't know, 10 or 12 or 20 prints of a movie that starts on the East coast and then just works its way West. And it's, it's not really a nationwide release. They just keep playing the same prints in different towns as they, as they move West or, starting from the West, moving to the East, or just how whatever their distribution is going to be. Is that what happened in Brunswick? They, you know, this, like a touring circuit, or was this more of a slow, slow build up to a, a wider release? Because I've yeah. gotten conflicting information on that. I'm not really sure. I, I feel, uh, let me just say this, you know, you mentioned Empire. We didn't get Empire till June. Oh, jeez. Uh, first. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as far as whether it's a buildup or kind of a tour, I, I'd, I'd call it more of a buildup to a larger release. And the reason I say that is because once it came here, it didn't leave. Like that's one of the other things that I started looking up because there's, there's kind of a historical comparison that goes on between Star Wars and Gone with the Wind. So when I started looking up things historically about when Star Wars came here and how long it lingered here and that kind of thing, I decided to go back and start doing the same thing for Gone with the Wind. When did Gone with the Wind come to Brunswick, my hometown? Uh, how long did it stay, et cetera, et cetera. And Gone with the Wind would come here and be here for two or three days, and then it would leave. And then six months later, it'd be back for two or three days. Then it would leave, and then three months later, it'd be back for two or three days, and then it would leave. So it was more like a touring entity in that respect. Um, but Star Wars, when it came here, it was here for 12 solid weeks. So it wasn't... Yeah, this wasn't a stop somewhere. And back then, that was amazing. That was like, they literally were saying, the record 10th week, record 11th week, record. It was here for 12 weeks. Um, so it, it wasn't a deal where they were kind of circulating the print. I think they were probably producing prints, and it took a lot longer to strike prints back then than it, you know, obviously you don't even strike a print now. No. Um, so I think it took them time to get that stuff up and running. But yeah, once it got here, it stayed. It didn't go anywhere. And we got to see it. Uh, that was the other big shock of my life was that July 29th, I went and saw Star Wars. And I thought, great, I've seen the greatest movie I'll ever see in the rest of my life. And um, about a month and a half later, we're at my house and my dad is, because this is such a golden era for me. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's all downhill from 77. <laughs> 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 it's uh, my dad is putting the finishing touches on my birthday present, which is a treehouse that he has built oh. uh, straddling two trees in the back and two four-by-fours in the front. 
big oh, treehouse, A-frame, rope ladder. I mean, everything you could possibly want. And he's putting the finishing touches on it, and I'm helping him build it. And my uncle is over helping him build it as well. And my uncle was always the nerdy one in the family. He was the Star Trek guy and that kind of thing. And uh, I, I would not shut up about Star Wars, obviously. And my uncle said, and this is mid-September, my uncle said, I haven't seen it. He lived in Jessup, which was 40 miles away. Right. And they still had not gotten Star Wars in Jessup. Oh, man. And uh, and this is September of 77, you know, May 25th. Huh. So my uncle says, yeah, I still haven't seen it. It still hasn't come to Jessup yet. And my dad said, well, I haven't been to see it either because my mom had taken us. And uh, so they said, well, let's let's go see it tonight when we're done here. And I thought, okay, that's great. They're going to go see it. And then my dad said, do you want to go with us? And I went, wait, what? Wait, you can go see a movie at the theater twice? Because <coughs> this was like a banned practice in my household. When you saw a movie at the theater, that was it. If it came on television again 15 years later, then you could watch it. But otherwise, once you've seen it at the theaters, you don't go back. You buy one ticket. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And so now all of a sudden I'm being told, oh, yeah, no, you can go see this movie twice. Wait wow. a minute, I can see this twice? So that night I went and saw it with my dad and my uncle. The film broke, by the way. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, during the walls, uh, during the garbage shoot uh, sequence. Oh, and, uh, uh, but that set me off on this, wait a minute, I can go see this again. Well, I got done and I came home and mom said, do you like it? I said, yes, I want to go see it again. And she kind of went, well, you know, we don't really do that. So, no, we did it. <laughs> yeah, the precedent's been set, yeah, honey. It's we, too late we, now. Yeah, <laughs> we did it. We, we got to do this again. So I caught it another time before it left. But, you know, that's the other thing, that when you talk about it being in the background when you were younger and everything, uh, that's another one of those pieces to this puzzle of kind of being of my exact generation, which was when you got up on Saturday morning, you hoped to God, not only are you going to watch your cartoons, but you hoped to God that you saw a commercial that said Star Wars is coming back to your local theater. Mm -hmm. Because every so often you'd get that, you know, the first release was well over a year long, but it would, it would come to a market for a while and then leave and then come back and then leave. And uh, you hoped to God you would get to see a Star Wars commercial because that meant it was coming back and you could go see it again. Uh, but that's the only way you could see it unless you had a, a super eight projector or something. Um, but so, so, you know, you would get up and you'd watch laugh Olympics or whatever. And then you just hoped commercial break came on and you sat on the edge of your seat with your captain crunch in your bowl, hoping that there was a star Wars commercial on, cause that meant it was coming back and you could go see it again. Right. And you know, it's, it's a very different thing from having been able to just plunk in a VHS and go, eh, star Wars. Well, the, you know, the thing about it was, you know, I grew up in a, definitely in the time of the wide release. I don't think that the whole mm -hmm. circuit writing release thing was, I don't think that was really a thing anymore by the, even when I was like three or four years old, certainly not any time after that, at least that I'm aware yeah. of. And well, I mean, for like, from like major Hollywood releases, like those indie films, well, that's, that's yeah. something else, but yeah, well, but no, you talk about wide release. Uh, you talked about Return of the Jedi, and that was the first movie that I saw on release day, on May 25th, Wednesday, May 25th. And I got out of school and went over to the theater and sat and waited and, and uh, went and saw Return of the Jedi. That's the first time we really had it. Now, they jacked up the price for it. Uh -huh. 
but uh, you know, Not normally, cool. no, uh, normally the kids' ticket at the time was a dollar fifty. Adult ticket was three dollars, and they jacked them up to four fifty and two fifty, just for Return of the Jedi. That is low. <laughs> that that is so low. I'm whatever. The um the thing about Star Wars that um. Well, really, there were two crucial issues, uh, you know, for me when I was younger. When I was a teenager, and we've talked about this, you know, the the John Williams thing. Mm -hmm. Really, for me, all roads sort of led back to Star Wars 77. And it's not that I don't like any of the other Star Wars music, because I do. But there's a power and there's a vision that is embedded in the DNA of that of that soundtrack. Mm-hmm. that I don't think is quite matched by what came later. Even Empire, as good as it is. Even yeah. Empire, there's just this electricity that Star Wars 77 music has that I've been searching for ever since and have never really never really been able to find. Yeah, I, I have a tough time separating Empire from all of that, but I, I definitely know what you're talking about. I mean, there is a clear establishment of themes for everything in the film. Right. And then there's the clear manipulation of those themes to convey story. That is, you know, when we're talking about light motif, obviously, but it's mm-hmm. it's it's so well done, so well communicated that anybody can really pick up that story by listening to the the soundtrack album. I remember we were at uh, Disney MGM Studios at a podcast meetup, and David Collins was there. David Collins hosts the, the Star Trek the Star Trek show, the soundtrack show on uh, the iHeartRadio podcast network. Hmm. And uh, he used to host a thing called Star Wars Oxygen where he'd he'd go through all the Star Wars uh, films. And we were talking about the Force Awakens score and uh, somebody had mentioned they were disappointed with it and and David had said, yeah, but you have to understand this isn't a pop album. And he'd say, blah, 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 blah. And I said, wait a minute, David. Because there may be a flaw in your thinking here in that that original Star Wars soundtrack was most definitely a pop album. It had recognizable hooks. It had catchy tunes. It had, you know, things that you, when you listened to it once, you were going to hum along with it from every point forward after that. It even had uh, deep cuts, actually. It had deep cuts. cuts. Yeah. I mean, it, the Star Wars soundtrack album, the original Star Wars 77 soundtrack, is 100% a pop album. Hmm. Well, no, I mean, it, well, it, it is true that, um, God, you know what? You're you're absolutely right. I mean, and and the thing about it is, there's a, um, it feels because this at one time this was the, the highest grossing movie of all time. Yeah. And so it feels weird to say that the soundtrack album thereof, that there that there could even be a deep cut uh, on there. But I'm telling you, there is, or there are deep cuts on there. Uh, Inner City. You know, that's one of them. Or I, I don't know if that's part of the original soundtrack album, but there is a there there is yeah, a track. It is. Oh, it is. Okay. Well, there's one on. Uh, there is such a track on what I downloaded from iTunes, Inner City, and it's more just sort of almost incidental music. You know, it is in a lot of ways. It, it does kind of epitomize the, this idea of background music, and yet you, I I honestly don't think all the times I've ever listened to this album start to finish. I can. I think I've skipped virtually every other track on the album at one point or another, 
most commonly probably cantina band, but inner city, I honestly don't think I've ever skipped that. By any sane standard, this is a deep cut. And yet this is, or at least it was the most, uh, the highest grossing movie of all time. And it's just, it, it, it's kind of weird that Star Wars, it, it is unique and that it, it has always existed in, in, in two worlds. There's the mainstream wide audience world but there's also the niche world as well. This is a niche blockbuster. Do you agree with that? Um, or a yeah, I see what you're saying. Put it that way. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I can buy that. Um, now, the other thing that I wanted to mention, because I said there were two, but the other thing that I wanted to mention, again, this is just part of the, part of the white noise when I was growing up there were these kind of good-natured rivalries that kids would have with each other. I mean, if you're going to go outside and play games uh, uh, with one another, maybe what everyone wants to play is Star Wars. And so, I mean, you've got to get over the pissing contest of who's going to be Vader. You've got to get past that. But once you do, you've now got... I always thought this was sort of a... kind of an eye-opening moment. You know, who are your friends? Like, who are they as people? And the kids that wanted to be Han, they were a certain type. The kids that wanted to be Luke were yet a different type. And they were rarely in conflict with each other. The conflict existed over which of the Luke kids wanted to be Luke and then which of the Han. But the, 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 the kids that wanted to be Luke, they didn't, there was no great pull towards wanting to be Han and vice versa. And I always thought it was kind of an interesting thing. I mean, there is an argument that the characters as we see them in Star Wars 77, they're less characters and more archetypes. Sure, absolutely. And I, and, and I tend to ag somewhat agree with that. But I've, I've always thought that it was kind of an interesting little uh, Rorschach test. Because me, I always wanted to be Obi-Wan. And so, you know, no one was competing for that. Yeah, so you didn't I knew have to that fight one. anybody for that. So I thought, well, okay, that one's guaranteed to be mine. And so, you know, I'm, I, I'm covered. I don't have to arm wrestle anyone for this. But I always thought that it was kind of an interesting thing that there wasn't a... It said a lot about who your friends were based on who they identified with. Was that a phenomenon that you had a great amount of experience? Like, did you encounter that yourself when you were younger or what? Like, how did that work exactly? You know, I think a lot of us, and, and this is something people tend to lose sight of nowadays, uh, a lot of us would fight over who got to be Luke, because Luke is the guy. Yeah. Luke was the main character, but I think if you chose to be Solo, that was great. Now, when Empire Strikes Back came out, all of a sudden, he was really cool for all the kids to be. But when the first Star Wars came out, we didn't really want to be him, because he kind of tried to rain on everybody's parade. We liked being Luke. We mm -hmm. fought to be Luke. Uh you know, because again, we all wanted to be the main character, and and he was that. Uh, I liked being Darth Vader sometimes because I just loved getting in the head of the bad guy. Right. Um, but when we played, it was the the fight was usually to be Luke. Uh, Solo entered the picture in Empire Strikes Back, and I remember. I mean, it was Halloween costumes. Everybody tried to dress up like Luke in my squad. We all tried to dress up like Luke the first movie. Uh, we all tried to dress up like Solo for the Empire, you know, for Halloween. <laughs> I mean, you know, it just happened that way. <clears throat> well, the um, I, it, it's just, it, like I say, it was just, well, and also keep in mind, like I say, I mean, I grew up 
for all practical purposes, this was a completely different era. Because as you say, there's pre-Star Wars and post. And I would even say there's pre-trilogy and post. And I grew up definitely yeah. post-trilogy. Post and one of the things that I remember encountering on the playground at Odessa Christian uh, Elementary School or whatever it's called. Um, but anyway, Odessa Christian was... Um, Number one, I mean, I think there was just a natural sort of identification with Luke that a lot of us had in the first place. Mm -hmm. Whether or not he's the lead character, he's from the desert, just like us. <laughs> he's he's the local boy made good, you know, as far as we're concerned. But the this was not a fandom of Star Wars was not something that you had to go out on the playground and justify, you know, even post trilogy, like, and I'm talking like 1985, 86, when I was uh, in school, I was in kindergarten growing up, you know, you didn't really have to justify that, even though, let's face it, Empire, it, from a kid's standpoint, had been two eternities earlier. The yeah. memory of it, the importance of it, 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 it was, the, the place is still saturated in it. You do not have to justify being a Star Wars fan on that playground. Sure. I did have to justify being a Superman fan, like of all things you could possibly mm. love. Look, uh, mask. I can understand, uh, Thundercats, this, I can understand, but super Superman, like really. And mm. I remember talking to my friends about it and this was, it was almost like trying to communicate with them in a different language. You know, uh, what I valued and appreciated about Superman. <sighs> It just, for some reason, it didn't translate. And, you know, to this day, I mean, I've never figured out, <clears throat> is is this because I'm just kind of an introverted weirdo? Or <laughs> was this just the time, you know, just the time that I lived? But Well, it may have this... had something to do with Superman 3. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> I don't know. I just, well, again, you know, I go back to to, I saw Superman, the movie at the theater, and I came out and I could fly. Yeah, I loved, loved, loved that movie. And again, John Williams all in it. Um, and then I saw two, had to wait in a long, 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 long line to see two. And then I saw three and I went, oh, that's that's it, huh? Okay, it's just kind of a, and, and nothing awful about three other than it's just kind of a, it made it seem more episodic and less epic, if that makes sense. No, it does. I, that's actually probably the perfect way to say it. Um. Yeah. Okay. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll ride with that. But this whole idea of assuming somebody's Star Wars fandom was that something that, like, how common was that when you were a kid? And I mean, yeah, specifically from I would say pre-Empire, nineteen seventy-seven, going right on through to seventy-nine. Like, how, how prevalent yeah. was that? Like, could you just well, roll up to someone and and say, hey, what's your favorite part of Star Wars? Or is this something yes. you had to broach a bit? No. Uh, and that was how it's funny because we always talk about it. We were picked on for being star Wars fans. Uh, and we weren't because everybody was, you know, you went on the playground and the people that got picked on were the ones who went, eh, star Wars sucks. Those are the ones that got picked on. Uh, star Wars was our thing. It was La Cosa Nostra. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, we, and, and kids could speak that common language because we all spoke star Wars. 
and some of us spoke it a little more fluently than others. And so we kind of got looked at as, you know, you're the guy, you know, but it was a cool thing. You know, you get elevated for knowing more about Star Wars than anything else uh, or not than anything else, but than anybody else in the in the group. You know, it wasn't a thing where you were, oh, he's a nerd. Leave him alone. It was more, wow, he knows more Star Wars than the rest of us. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's just it, it, it's so it is so odd that when you start getting into 19, I would say 1990s, really. Mm-hmm. Star Wars, I think at that time was still at, well, prior to 1997, I guess it was still the highest grossing movie of all time. But uh, again, this, this it was sort until of, 82. Right. But didn't it? Re, oh, no, you're right. It ET regained it. it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And it regained it in 19. Well, briefly regained it in 1997. Yeah. yeah the Titanic smashed that. I was like, oh, well. Yeah, well, good while it lasted. But, yeah. Uh, but this again kind of speaks to the fact that Star Wars was a cult blockbuster. Yeah. It was. It was an indie I, film gone gone rogue. Yeah. And you could, this was something that everyone knew about, everyone had seen, and yet the hardcore Star Wars fan was excellent fodder for making fun of in mainstream culture. Even though everybody loves this movie, the guy that loves it maybe a little too much. We, and mm-hmm. this, it mystified me, and I was living through this, okay? And it still yeah. mystified me, but. How does it work exactly that we think this guy is a weirdo for loving something that we all agree we all love? Yeah, uh, exactly. How does that work? Uh, and that was the t- the time period you're talking about was that time when when Star Wars had really crept back into the popular consciousness, and we were we were quoting it. Everyone was quoting it. Everyone mm-hmm. everywhere was quoting it. Everyone was starting to wear the t-shirts, and yet there was a certain subset of us that just knew too much. Um, and it, and it may have to do with how fleshed out the background got because there's so much by then there's so much off screen stuff yeah that you could you could know and be aware of i mean uh even i you know would go well that's that's hammerhead well no that's momon nadon what <laughs> you know, that's walrus man no that's panda baba yeah yeah oh on dr Evazon. yep <laughs> yeah and so there was kind of another level that kind of developed over time, and, and a lot of that blame I'll place at the foot of the West End games because they did a lot of naming things that didn't have names previously or or names that we were perfectly happy with, like Walrus Man, Snaggletooth. Well, yeah, and, like, that's the thing. I mean, I always thought that when it came, when it came to establishing the EU, you know, mm-hmm. just as a general idea... I mean, people can say what they want about things like Splinter of the Mind's Eye, the uh, Brian Daly Han Solo trilogy. I think there was a Lando series of books. There was a trilogy of Lando books by L. Neil Smith. Yeah. And wow, L. Neil Smith. Wow, I didn't know that. Okay. Um, Yeah. Oh, well, I was thinking Lensman. But yeah, well, whatever, same difference. Um, So the, (laughs) the, um, those things are important, and I'm not taking anything away from them. But it's like at the same time, you know, the real seeds of the EU, I always thought there are two real seeds, somewhat Marvel Star Wars and really West End games. Now, certain things would get improved upon, refined, perfect, contradicted even in some cases. But basically uh-huh. the the beginning, the real beginning of the of what we now think of 
or what we once thought of as the EU really starts like when was that like 1987 or 88 when the first yeah they came out as part of the 10 year celebration uh yeah. 87 uh, and in fact I will back up your theory by saying when Timothy Zahn first took on the task of writing heir to the empire which is the first real genuine honest to goodness new EU novel the first thing they did was they hired him and then they dumped all the west end game stuff on him and said here read this yeah. So that was where a lot of the world the world building took place. And that stuff had such I mean that's one of the reasons why it's so expensive on eBay now to buy that old early e, uh, West End game stuff is because uh there's there's so little of it. You know, the print runs were so little. Uh but yet they had so much information, so many things named, so many backstories filled in that they are kind of crucial books now. Well, I'm yes and no. I mean, we're all kind of thinking of you want to dive. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's just well, what I'm thinking is, you know, that this is supposed to be, uh, you know, why we love Star Wars. But I am thinking of that infamous video you made where you decide it's time to clear up your uh, bookshelf a little bit. uh, (laughs) um, But we're going to try try avoiding that. One of the things that I've always kind of struggled with uh, when it comes to Star Wars and what and I, I really do mean always. It's been basically non-movie Star Wars media. You and I, we've talked about this a little bit, but my you know, I, I get the idea that you've done various deep dives into non well, let's just say it, EU stuff mm-hmm. um over over the decades, whereas it's always been a lot harder for me to find to find Star Wars novels, for example, that I can really get... Now, putting aside, you know, does this really feel like a Star Wars story to me? We're, we're, we're past that. Is this even something that's entertaining? And you get stuff like The Courtship of Princess <laughs> Leia, which is entertaining in yes. ways I don't think was intended by the author, but nevertheless, you know, entertaining. But there are some other things, these these little golden nuggets that you can find here and there, like James, Lu- uh, James Luceno's um, Cloak of Deception novel, which this is a, this is really kind of a political thriller set in the Star Wars universe. And sure. either that works for you or it doesn't. And so just word of the wise there, but, well, but also remember James Luceno was uh, Brian Daly's writing partner. So yeah. Yeah. The, and you know, shared I, I, sensibilities. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And everything Star Wars of his, that at least that I've ever read, I've never come away thinking, man, that was just a real piece of crap. It, it's never yeah. happened. You know, yeah. I kind of regard Cloak of Deception as sort of necessary. Well, not necessary, but a very helpful backstory for episode one. Absolutely. If you really want to get into the like some of the blood and guts of the political maneuverings and Machiavellian stuff that's going on, mm-hmm. that is an excellent companion. Totally agree. Um, and then, of course, you know, my love of Shadows of the Empire, I, you know it only too well, I think. Hmm. Um, but some of these other things, I always struggled, like specifically with Marvel Star Wars. I would say that it was it, it was really, really solid for, I would say, the first 12 issues. And then it's like, once you get past that, except for like movie adaptations and stuff, I and maybe even those, but... I really can take or leave it, you know? Ooh, yeah, no. Uh, I I love Marvel Star Wars with a 
burning white hot passion. Um, I, I, if I were to give you some recommendations, I would say, uh, pay attention to those mid teens to really, <laughs> really, oh golly. I mean, pay attention to 15 through 30 or 15 through 36. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there are some great stories being told in there. And a lot of people get turned off by the art in those things. Uh, Carmine Infantino with the art, because he does have a very distinctive and unique style. But you also have to understand that he's not going for photorealism by any stretch of the imagination, but he's also a masterful storyteller. Yes. And there are, I mean, there's a story, Crimson Jack to me is a wonderful story. Uh, the Wheel is a six-part story when, when they didn't do six-part stories. Um, and it's paced, you know, a lot of times you talk about six part story these days would be paced for the trade. You could read it in 20 minutes. Uh, this is a dense six issues worth of story. Uh, then you've got Valance, the hunter who's wrapped up in there. Uh, Valance has been so popular, you know, they, they brought him into the new canon. uh, finally introduced him. Not exactly the same guy that he was before, but it's, it's nice to have him there. He's just got a mini series that they're in the middle of as we speak called target Vader. Um, there is, and, and the, the Taggy family, the, all of that drama, uh, you remember uh, General Tag from the uh, the Death Star? Right, yeah. And his whole Tag family. Tag and Bink, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, that different one. But uh, there's a whole, I mean, his whole family is involved in this. You know, there's a, a barren title that the general had. He's dead, so it falls to another brother. They've got a brother who's into the sciences. They've got a sister who's become a monk. Uh, and they all play a part in this intrigue in trying to kind of muddy Darth Vader's path through the Empire's hierarchy, which is fantastic. The big rivalry with Vader for the Emperor's favor, uh, even though the Emperor's not really even a character at this point. Um, and, and part of this, too, uh, all of it's tied into Vader's quest to find out who this guy is that blew up the Death Star. Right. Uh, and why I think that's fascinating when Marvel relaunched it, like in the second issue, Luke and Vader are clanging sabers. And I thought, well, gosh, that kind of hurts the Empire Strikes Back a little. Um, it took the original Marvel Star Wars 36 issues to give you something like that. But even that didn't hurt the Empire Strikes Back, which came a couple of issues later. Um, but yeah, I, that run. And then after that, they they had a little bit of a period, I think, where they drifted a little uh, right after Empire. And then they found their footing when uh, David Michelinie and Walt Simonson took over. And I think there's some really good stories in there. Uh, uh, Shira Bree. Yeah. And I, yeah, know, yeah. I know that's how to pronounce her name because David Michelinie, who created her, told me that's how you pronounce it. Um, was not how I pronounced it as a kid. But um, the her saga, I think, is fascinating and wonderful. Uh, I think a lot of Michelini stuff is uh, is great. So I, I after that, now Scott Gardner and I and, and Chris Honeywell and I will disagree on the Cynthia Martin, Joe Duffy era, which I just think is awful. Uh, and I went back and reread it and still have nothing for it. But there's some, to me, some real gems that belong alongside the best of the novels in Marvel Star Wars. Well, there was... Uh, and you've you've hit upon this quite a few times now. Um, <clears throat> there was that big uh, Star Wars renaissance that took place in uh, the 90s. And oh, yeah. a major feature of that was 
a revival of Star Wars comics published by Dark Horse. Yep. And there was, I want to, this is in the late 90s now, but there was, and this is one of those things I've, I've spent forever trying to find and just haven't been able to find it. But the basic pitch of the story, just to kind of touch on what you were saying just a little while ago, it's basically uh, post Star Wars 77, pre Empire, you've got Vader. He's trying to find out who is the rebel oh, specifically who Vader's blew up. Quest. Va- oh, it's Vader's Quest? Okay. Yeah. In, in Dark Horse it is, yeah. Yeah. Well, there was just this really memorable scene. I, I flipped through it, and saw, I was at the LCS for, I don't even remember what now, but I thought, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. I need to remember that. In one eyeball, out the other. I totally <laughs> forgot about it. But there's this really memorable scene where Vader pursues somebody into like a bird sanctuary because this is the guy that knows. So number one, mm-hmm. Vader needs to get the name of the rebel pilot out of this guy. Number two, mm-hmm. Vader needs to end this guy. Vader's the only one who wants to know. And Mm -hmm. so he whacks the guy, mission accomplished. Then he turns around, this huge flock of parrots, they're all saying the name Skywalker, Skywalker, Skywalker. (laughs) And you can just see the exasperation on his face, like, what the hell am I going to do? And I just thought that, it's like on the one hand, there's like a dark humor about it, but it's like on the other hand, it's like I could see something like this in an actual, like a transition movie between Star Wars 77 and Empire, a scene like this. Mm. And that would be like really... Yeah, you kind of get the catharsis of that kind of funny moment, you know, (laughs) but now you realize, oh, my God, now he's that one step closer to closing in on Luke. And, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen next? And that is just an incredible sequence. And I don't like I say, I don't have a whole lot of positive things to say about any Star Wars comic. But, man, that was that one is a real winner. But in terms of, hmm? but, you know, as far as that goes, uh, I'm gonna. There's the, the story that has the hunter versus Vader is very similar to that, uh, and it came out first. And and to me, it's it was even more impactful to me. Um, Vader's looking for this pilot. Who is this pilot that destroyed the Death Star? And remember, at this time, we don't know anything about the resolution of the story. I mean, we don't know anything about the parenting, the lineage, all that other stuff. We just know Vader's looking for Luke, and we're protective of Luke. And uh, they introduced the Hunter in issue 16. It reads like a fill-in issue. And he's a guy who's a bounty hunter, but he's half cyborg. And it's Archie Goodwin's kind of way, or maybe Chris Claremont might have written that original issue. Their, their kind of way of playing off of the, your droids, we don't serve their kind here. So there's a very distinct class separation in the original film. You know, we don't serve their kind here. Yeah, They're not allowed at the lunch counter, basically. Yeah, And uh, so droids are treated second class. Well, here's Valance, who by necessity, by medical necessity, is half droid uh, in order to survive. He covers that up, but when people find out about it, he's concerned that they're going to think he is less than human because in a very real sense, he is less than human. Yeah. Uh, so that it's, it's a big thing to him, and he's angry, and he hates droids because of it, because society obviously already doesn't care for droids. Um, but Valance gets put on the path of Luke Skywalker and winds up having a big confrontation with him. And three PO actually steps in willing to give his life for Luke's. Hmm. And this just, this whacks Valance upside the head. It's like, wait a minute. 
This guy has inspired such loyalty in a droid that the droid doesn't just go, hey, go ahead. You know, take him out. What do I care? I'm a droid. I'll get another master. No big deal. Uh, and this plays with Balance's head. So Balance goes off and decides he's going to put an end to Vader's pursuit of Luke Skywalker. And it's fascinating because Vader is chasing this guy named Tyler Lucian. Mm-hmm. And Tyler Lucian was a rebel at the rebel base on Yavin. When the Death Star got close, as you know, it was seconds away from, from firing. When the Death Star got too close, he didn't think there was any hope, and he fled the base. He basically committed an act of cowardice, but he also was listening on the radio and knew who blew up the Death Star. So mm-hmm. Vader got the lead. Tyler Lucian was this guy, and Tyler Lucian is in hiding. He's in hiding on this planet where basically they have just acid seas. And... uh Sounds like an ideal vacation spot. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing. He figures nobody will get him here. So he's literally in this tower, and Vader comes up to the planet and parks, and there's this elaborate bridge system that gets to the tower over these acid seas. And uh, Vader basically brings his fighter up and, and has to traverse these bridge, this, this bridge system to get to the tower, and Valance steps in his way. And Valance says, you're not going to get this kid's name. You're not going to get the name out of this guy. I'm going to stop you. And Vader and he have this epic confrontation over this this acidic ocean or lake, really. I think it's called Ruby Flame Lake. And uh, you know, spoiler alert, because I don't I don't think you're digging these up anytime soon. But uh, <clears throat> Vader winds up dunking Valance into the lake, mm-hmm. so that's it for him. And then basically, there's nothing going to stop him from getting to Tyler Lucian, the coward who fled Yavin Four. And uh, Tyler Lucian turns around and decides to do the one, the one brave thing he's ever done in his life. As Vader is coming for him at the tower, he dives out of the tower into the acid. Yeah. And this isn't a code-approved comic. You know, this is a kid's comic. And he just offs himself right there. Wow. Yeah. And it's wow. powerful. It is powerful. Uh, and just a great story and a great Star Wars story. And then Vader, of course, is foiled. And there's nothing better than just an angry frustrated vader well yeah and honestly i mean i i I hate reducing vader down to like donald duck or something but i gotta tell you (laughs) vader is kind of at his best when he's mad you know i mean oh yeah that's when you really i mean look he has that that sort of cold rage that that he'll do sometime like an imperial officer you know vader just doesn't dig what he has to tell him right there's that then there's the one where he really does go off the deep end. And um, I don't know. That's always, you know, the most fearsome. The thing is, you know, when it, at least when it comes to Marvel Star Wars, I want to say that the first couple of issues, refresh my memory, I think those were drawn by Howard Shaken. Is that yeah, right? Jake, yeah, Shaken was there for, hmm, I want to say, eight or nine issues. And I don't know why that... There are certain you. I'm sure you're familiar with this. You know there are certain artists out there whose work you cannot abide. There's Bilson Kevich. There's <laughs> there's Klaus Jansen. And for me at least, there's also Howard Howard Shaken. I just I don't know what it is, but it's just those three guys. Mm-hmm. If I just see any of their names on a cover of any comic book, it's like I'm, that is potentially a deal breaker. Like if it's anything less, I know. Than, I, hmm? Yeah. I know it's blasphemy, but I'm totally with you on Sienkiewicz. Mm. Well, and like the thing is, I mean, like, I don't want to get too far off 
off topic here, but there was a point when, you know, Sinkevich, I think he was doing like a lot of vertigo, a lot of Sandman type stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like, OK, fine. You know, you, you want to put somebody like Bill Sinkevich on a book like that. <clears throat> Whatever. Be my guest. All right. But there was a he had a run. People tend to forget this, but he had a run on Spectacular Spider-Man um, during the of all uh, the uh, clone era. Right. So you've got some wow. pretty good, I would say, Sal Buscema uh, pencils. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say that, you know, Sal Buscema, no one's going to be mixing him up with John Romita Jr. anytime or John no, Romita no. Sr. for that matter. Or, no one's or, mix or John him, Buscema for that matter. Or, yeah, or John Buscema. Yeah. But I, I would say that, you know what, what he puts on the page, it's very functional. It's very, um, it, it, on a technical level, it actually tends to be very well done. He has very well structured pages. It's the line itself that I can honestly take or leave. But man, you put those those fucking horrible Bill Sienkiewicz inks on top of his pencils, and it's like, oh my God, whoever thought of this? <laughs> I mean, it was a slog. I mean, yeah. it, it, it got to a point where I just decided, you know what, Marvel, they don't want my business. That's really what mm. this is about. They don't want me to read Spider-Man comics because this is the clone saga, and now we're in our third year, and as if all that's not bad enough, now we've got Bill frickin' Sinkevich. And yeah, anyway, so didn't mean to <laughs> rant like that. But, uh, no, yeah. that's okay. I understand. I I, uh, I had my fill of him when he when he did his New Mutants run that everybody was in love with. And I just kept going, but guys, this doesn't look like anybody. This is These don't look like people. Well, and like that's the thing. I mean, it's okay to have like stylized art, even if it's not necessarily like technically perfect. Like what I tell mm-hmm. people is... I challenge you, all right? Go back and read those uh, those Frank Miller issues of Daredevil. You're mm. going to see a lot of uneven lines, like lines that are supposed to be straight. Yep. You see a lot of uneven lines. You see some kind of weird anatomy and proportion. Sometimes the perspective is a little bit goofy on, on, on certain things. But it's like, who the hell remembers that? I mean, those are just such mm. good issues that... I, at least, notwithstanding the fact that a lot of the inking on those were, it was actually done by Klaus Janssen, God help us all. Hmm. But when you move away from that, I mean, yeah, things may not be technically perfect. That doesn't make it bad. Where the rubber seems to leave the road for you and me is when you get the likes of Bill Sienkiewicz, who it's not a matter of, you know, maybe the draftsmanship isn't quite as perfect as it might be. It's just not good. Okay. It's (laughs) full stop. Not good. That's that's the problem, right? But and, so. and the but the weird thing is, like, if you've ever noticed, he did the cover to Marvel Super Special uh, with Return of the Jedi in it. Oh, I remember it well. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's yeah. it's nothing at all like the stuff that's inside the comics he does. Uh, so he's capable of doing this one thing that is fantastic, but he chooses to do this other thing. Yeah, and that's what I don't understand. Well, and it kind of goes back to that John Romita Jr. thing of, <clears throat> and I would say, you know what, maybe it's even worse in John Romita Jr.'s case, but it's there, there was a time when, you know, in John Romita Jr.'s career where that guy, he was, he was churning out classic after classic. And I mean, like his first run on Amazing Spider-Man, that stuff is great. Iron Man, that stuff is great. I think he did a little bit of X-Men stuff. That stuff was great. Yeah, he did. And I don't know what the hell happened to this guy. Like the instant he started working on man without fear, it's like, he said, okay, I need to be the new Frank Miller. And 
it's it's like the especially if you see like uh, Kick Ass Two and and all of that. What has happened to his line style in all of these years? It's like the worst of Frank mm. Miller, but now it's in color. So <laughs> yeah, and but it's just. And I, I, this is something that a lot of artists get mad about whenever you say it to them. But it's like, look, dude, you had something that was good, okay? Mm-hmm. You were great when you started. Now, I don't know what the fuck happened, but at <laughs> some point along the way here, you lost the point yeah. of what – In anyway, so – but. Sorry whatever. I did that to you. I didn't mean to take you down that road, but – No, uh, it, it's fine. It's I think it all needed to be said, so I'm glad you said it. Yeah, and, and then – well, yeah, there's more. There's always more, so I'm just, I'm just going <laughs> to shut up. We're going to move on. There was a um, there was a, 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 a sort of a criticism that I had of of particularly Star Wars comics for a really long time of you're not really showing me anything new here, guys. I mean, look, I, I love Vader, I love Chewie, I, I love all that stuff, but it's like it, you get to a point where you fleshed out the existing story so much that I don't really know what's left anymore. I kind of want to see where things are going now. Mm-hmm. And we for a long time we weren't getting that, but there was a there was a Star Wars comic I want to say started up like two thousand four two thousand five something like that that finally finally scratched the itch for me. Star Wars Legacy. Legacy. Oh uh-huh. yeah. And now <laughs> where were you good. coming from with, with with Legacy? Like how was how 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 were you doing with that? I the only thing I didn't like really about Legacy in premise was I thought it was too close to the original trailer. That's what 125 years later or something. Yeah. Uh, I thought maybe generationally it was a little too close to the original trilogy, but I love the premise. I love the uh, the idea. I, I like uh, I, I like Jan Dersma, who uh, she to me was kind of the dark horse house style for Star Wars, and she did that series. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I was always a big fan of her stuff going back to some of her other earlier star Wars stuff. Um, if I'd had a nice, great conversation with her at celebration six, I want to say, uh, actually had a great conversation with her and, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, uh, Al Williamson's partner. What is his name? Why is that escaping me? Carlos Garcon. That's his name. Uh, that one was interesting cause he barely speaks English and I barely speak Spanish. So, but we made it work. <laughs> uh, okay. but yeah, no, I, I thought, I thought it was a great premise because, uh, you weren't locked into anything. And so everything was, everything was at risk. Everything was possible. Uh, you weren't locked into knowing every family, the relationship you weren't locked into knowing Chewie has to be here by this year, you know, by this time, three PO and R2 have to be here. Uh, it was kind of it was kind of a wild west, and and it introduced a certain gray element to Star Wars that that really hadn't been there before. Well, the thing that I liked about it was it felt like not so much in terms of continuity, but in terms of style, it felt like sort of a sort of a natural continuation of the New Jedi Order, uh-huh. and. You know, what I liked about the new Jedi Order was, number one, it actually did. It, I can understand if somebody read the new Jedi Order and thought, yeah, you know, this just is this is just not for me. This is a little 
a little too much. It's a little too hard sci-fi. You know, this is ultimately supposed to be a fantasy. And sure. obviously the big bad of the new Jedi Order, I think they're more firmly rooted in hard sci-fi, I would say. But one of the things that I liked about the new Jedi Order is it took risks and chances with the narrative. Now, there were times when I don't really agree with the creative direction that the new Jedi Order took. And of course, what I'm talking about <laughs> is the late lamented Anakin Solo. Mm. He was sort of my guy in new Jedi Order. Uh -oh. I mean, he and I were right around the same age and he seemed like he wasn't like the, you know, the, the, the gung ho ready for battle almost adrenaline junkie that Jaina Solo was or had become. And he wasn't the the kind of frozen in place, uncertain, philosophical, just kind of douchebag that Jason Solo was. Anakin <laughs> uh -huh. Solo, he kind of existed in this sort of happy medium where he could have a certain amount of uh, agency with his Jedi training. He could be successful in certain things. He can be young and stupid, he can fall in love. And as we learn in Star Bar, uh, the, the, the novel Star by Star, he can also die, which is really exactly- Really long novel. Yeah, well, I, like the thing about Star by Star that sticks with me even now is, you know, when the, when the book was announced, it was all anybody thought about it, or at least all I thought about it at the time was, oh yeah, this is gonna be the next, the next uh, hardcover. So, okay, fine, mm -hmm. that's, you know, looking forward to that. I want to say that was like spring of 2001. By the time the book actually came out, we lived, you and I both, in a very different world by then. It was October of 2001. And about a month ago, oh, yeah. something really important had happened. And yeah. that same sort of thing happened in Star by Star on a much bigger scale, but it's the same sort of thing. And Leia gives this... She has this monologue that she beams out to the entire galaxy that just it moves me to tears every single time I I read it. Just because, you know, it's post 9-11 and the the emotions of that, they're still really raw and everything. And what she's talking about unintentionally, but it's still appropriate. It speaks exactly to where we lived in that moment. I remember like the first time I read that I was sitting in an, in my chair in my home office and I, I just couldn't help it. I just, I, I cried, Yeah. you know, and it was, it, it's it, it, maybe so much of this just had to do with good timing, you know, new Jedi order. It came along at a good time and it was for everything else you can say about it was a good story. But what I thought, this kind of led to, it did sort of expand the dramatic possibilities of what you can do now in a Star Wars story, mm. paving the way, I think, for legacy in a way that I don't know would have been possible without the new Jedi Order. Like, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, it, uh, yeah, but I mean, it, I think it starts with Vector Prime, you know, where they, they oh, yeah. take Chewie off the board. Yeah. And at that point, they say, hey, guess what, guys? There are stakes. But again, that's kind of what I liked about, you go back to Legacy, and that's kind of what I, I liked about Legacy was uh, we don't we don't have any future investment in any of these guys. Anything can happen. Yeah. Um, and, and that, to me, the sign of New Jedi, Jedi Order was Vector Prime, and they take Chewie off the board, and it's like, hey, nobody's safe. 
sorry to tell you. And at the time, we thought there were no more films. So we're going, okay, no more films. Anybody can go off the board. Oh, boy, here we go. Yeah, that one, <clears throat> I got to tell you, reading Chewie's death, yeah, that, that hurt. Mm-hmm. That, it certainly I, did. And, like, the thing about it was, you know, in a certain kind of way, they chose the safest member of the core cast of characters. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe the droids would have been safer, but let's face it, this is the only one that's flesh and blood. Well, but and, the droids are also, the droids are very much our window into the saga, although they may not, they don't get that much ink in the paperbacks, in the novels. But it would be hard to, to ditch the droids and continue on just, just because of what they represent. Yeah. Well, the, um, what I heard, and I, honestly, I mean, I do, the sources I have on this, I, I, I do trust. But what they say is the uh, the writer of that book, R.A. Salvatore, he actually got like real death threats over that, you know. And <laughs> I believe it. You know, this was like pre-social network and all that, so he didn't really have yeah much of a way to like send up a bat signal to to the world at large and say, look, guys, Del Rey gave me my marching orders. I wrote the best yeah. book I could, but I have to color inside their lines. That was one of their lines. That absolutely so, was. That was a condition of the book, yeah. And so, but, the, you know, there are a lot of conspiracy theories about New Jedi Order. One of them is that the reason Jason Solo was presented as kind of this, just kind of a non-character in a certain sort of way, is he wasn't really supposed to be a character. It was ultimately going to be him that got killed off. And then the conspiracy theory goes... George Lucas started paying a little bit closer attention to goings on with the expanded universe. He found mm -hmm. out that there's a character named Anakin mm -hmm. and worse, this character named Anakin gets killed off. And George Lucas at that time was making movies about a character named Anakin. And he was concerned sure. about um, confusion in the marketplace that Anakin yeah. dies in a book, but yet he's alive in the, like, what is this? Oops. And so um, this, Conspiracy theory says George Lucas himself put his foot down and said, no, you got to kill off Anakin and do what you have to do after that. But Anakin Solo is worm food. And mm. so um, that's that's how that all came about. He didn't want to have there be confusion in the market. A book about Anakin Solo versus movies about Anakin Skywalker. And and so anyway, that's that's the conspiracy theory as it was put to me. And. Huh. And again, my objection to that was, well, what it, what this confusion, if people hear that Anakin is dead in the books and alive in the, like, but whatever, it was done. So anyway, yeah. I don't know if you had any exposure to that, but I at least want to throw it No, I didn't. I didn't find that interesting. Yeah. So. Well, uh, we, I, God, we've, we've, we've covered a lot of, a oh, lot yeah. of ground here. Um, do, you know, this is probably a good place to put a, to put a pin in it now before we kind of call it a day here and just in terms of star wars anything at all you know uh books comics movies shows cartoons whatever is there any stone we haven't left unturned for example the holiday special like is there anything that you <laughs> want to throw out there yeah uh I, I i would like to remind people 
that when we get older, well, let me let me take it back. Let me take it back a step further. Actually, let me start with the holiday special. Work backwards a little bit. Sure. Uh, I'd like to remind people that we do not go through lives as witty and sophisticated and uh, enlightened as we would like to think we always have been. Yes. Um, my buddy Riley Blanton came to me one day and he was doing a thing on. He, he does a Star Wars report podcast, and he was collecting people's one sentence statement as to why they love star Wars. And he had put together this, this, uh, kind of a thesis statement for him. It's a multi-generational mythological arc and blah, 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 blah. And I thought that's great. And I started thinking about it in terms of all the multi-generational mythological arcs as well. And then I stopped and I said, you know what? Bullshit. When I was six years old, Star Wars was my favorite thing in the world. Why was it my favorite thing in the world when I was six years old? I didn't know anything about mythological archetypes or uh, this multi-generational saga that enlightens us and teaches us values and all this. I knew that I had gone to the movies and had the best time I had ever had in my life. And I knew that it was my favorite thing in the world well before I saw any sophisticated reading of the subtext of the film or could even understand it. So I I just kind of boiled it down to, look, it's visually amazing. Uh, it, It presented the world in a way that we'd never seen it before. And it presented action and adventure on a scale that we always wanted at that age. And, and, uh, it was the first one that really delivered on that promise. Um, I say all that to say when we were kids, we didn't know that we were supposed to hate the holiday special. (laughs) And as a consequence, we didn't. I mean, look, I I will be honest with you. I have a hard time getting through it now and I've got it on DVD and I'll pop it in every so often. It is tough, but I I will also tell you that that eight year old kid in November of 78 that was watching that special and looking at that treehouse and seeing Chewbacca's family and all the gadgets and the the stormtroopers and and solo fighting it out on the on the uh, balcony of the treehouse, you know, and him throwing one over, and I was entranced. You know, for whatever parts I didn't care for in it, the stuff that I loved about it, I loved, and I didn't again know till much later that I was supposed to hate that. <laughs> well, the way I look at it is, if you do any anything that is truly creative artistic and worthwhile you're going to find yourself and if it's successful you're going to find yourself virtually overnight going from a small business to a giant corporation which is the position George Lucas found himself in Mm -hmm. and I I would guess starting in the summer of 1977 you know (laughs) he had a small business overnight became a giant corporation you know he had a lot of things on his plate not least of which was developing a sequel uh you know if somebody out there hates the holiday special and just thinks it's the worst thing ever all i ask is that you remember he was a pretty busy guy when that thing was getting put together we probably need to let a few things slide here a little bit guys so just take it easy so (laughs) absolutely absolutely and, and uh, I remember that the eight-year-old in, in a lot of us did not hate it at the time. We didn't know we were supposed to. 
Well, and like, that's the thing. I mean, I, there was a day, I, I, this is not an exaggeration. There were, I, I one time spent an entire Saturday afternoon watching Superman mm -hmm. 4 on a loop. Oh I my. was like uh, six or seven years old, all right? That's how much I loved Superman, all right? It's like the problems with that movie, just for whatever reason, did not phase me, you know? I didn't, I wasn't aware of them. All I knew is this is Superman, this is the newest movie, and I love it. That's all I know. So sure. I would be the last person to throw stones at anyone who loves or loved the, the holiday special. So awesome. So that I think is uh, probably going to be where Scott and I uh, wrap up our our uh, conversation here. Uh, Scott, I just want to thank you for joining in with me today. You know, it's kind of funny. I played hooky from work to to be here, and in a weird kind of way, <laughs> so did you. So, but uh, thanks a lot uh, for uh, joining in. I want to have you back. I don't, I don't care if it's for something to do with Star Wars or if it's more Spider Girl. I just want to have you back for something. So, thanks a lot for for joining in. It's uh, it's always a lot of fun when you're here. Any old time, you know that. I love doing this. <laughs> Glad to hear it. And as it happens, that's also pretty much it uh, for me for this year. I think I'm just gonna. I'm going to go ahead and uh, take the rest of this year off. Uh, if I've got this right, this episode is coming out on December the 17th. So that leaves the really the last two and a half weeks of, or two weeks, I guess, of the year for me just to, you know, have Christmas, hang out with the family, all that stuff. I'm probably going to come back sometime. I don't know when, but it's sometime in the new year. But uh, I think that's pretty much it for me uh, for this year. So. Bye, everybody. I will see you whenever I see you. We So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, 
I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens and dozens of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void were prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.